Before we begin, I just want to say again, Mark, just a little bit more energy, a little bit more enthusiasm. (laughs) Bring us right to where we need to be. Now, appreciate the passion. Someone once said there's no substitute for passion. I do believe that whether you're a teacher, a preacher, a worship leader, leading a prayer, reading a scripture, believe it and act like you believe it. There's nothing more depressing than hearing a room full of hundreds of people singing the joy of the Lord will be my strength. Sing like you mean it, okay? Worship is supposed to be a joyful experience, and I appreciate Mark directing us in that way. We are nearing the end of our journey with John on Sunday nights. We have uh, been endeavoring to go through John's very unique gospel account and his record of the time with Jesus that they spent as the apostles, and, and now we're nearing now after the cross, and we have a unique experience tonight. Tonight. Today. You think about Sunday. I don't know sure how long you've been a Christian, but for most of my adult life, Sunday's always been a time of devotion to the Lord. A time where we gather together, sometimes in Bible class to learn things, teach or to be taught, to come to fellowship and to encourage one another. Hey, how's your week been? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of so-and-so, or I heard you were in the hospital this week. It's that time of mutual encouragement. It's also a time of worship. When, in theory, you're supposed to take all of the stuff that's collected up here throughout the week and in here throughout the week and set that aside for maybe just an hour And to worship him, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. Meaning that we worship him in concordance with the truth and by the truth, but also from the spirit. That we worship him not just because here's the order of worship and here's the next thing to do, but out of a sincere desire to draw near to the presence of God. As we do that together as family... Each and every Sunday, each and every first day of the week. You ever thought about why it is that we do that? Acts chapter 20 verse 7 tells us that the Christians met on the first day of the week. Those early Christians were all Jewish. And before the Gentiles began to see the light as brought by Paul and the other missionaries... They were so used to having Sabbath, the seventh day, be the holy day. And now something has switched. Something has changed. And actually it was quite controversial in the early church. Um, They wanted those early Christians to observe the Sabbath as well. We're not going to get into that. Of course, we have some of that Sabbatarians today. And uh, they are very adamant. We get a lot of questions from them and know your Bible. And Steve's joke about that is the reason we get so many questions from the Seventh-day Adventists on Sunday is because they've already been to church on Saturday, and so they're they're home watching TV and send us all the questions. But if you think about what it took to transform a people who had been taught to revere the Seventh Day, to keep holy the Seventh Day, and to, to shift from one covenant to another, which is what's happened here, 
that it had to be something big, something huge. And it's what we're going to talk about tonight. You see, God declared the seventh day holy. But we're going to look at tonight something holier than the Sabbath came along. More specifically, not something, someone. And that's what changed it all. To where now, the seventh day is something that's not a part of our routine and our rhythm. But it's the first day. There's a reason for that. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. If you're following along in your Bibles, you're going to look at John uh, chapter 20, which is where our text will be tonight. We're going to try to look at three uh, this in three separate chunks. John would later call the first day of the week the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And in a lot of ways, John chapter 20, though it may not have happened specifically on Sunday, began the sequence of events which would turn our attention and our direction toward the Lord's Day, the first day. We're going to start reading in John chapter 20. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Of course, we know this is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, followed him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. On this very first, first day, the very first person to the tomb is a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, the stone is removed already. Uh, She has uh, come and and it's been removed. You may have heard this explained, but you need to understand that 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 stone was not removed for Jesus. Uh, Jesus... Uh, conqueror of death, creator of heaven and earth, did not find himself in a tomb early Sunday morning thinking, how do I get out of here? Okay. That was not the problem. The, the, the stone was rolled back for those who would come and see, and particularly for the women who would come and see. You need to know that, that this wasn't at all what they expected as they came near, especially Mary Magdalene. As she... Uh, came near, she, she's dumbstruck by what she sees, but she decides to go and, and find the boys and tell them, and so they run off to the tomb. Peter and John saw, but they didn't see. They saw the open tomb, they saw the cloths lying there, but they didn't, they didn't see. You ever know someone who sees, but they don't see? They're known to the facts, but they don't have the vision. They've got it in the head, but it hasn't quite reached their heart yet. This is where Peter and John, and I think Mary Magdalene are at the beginning. 
they saw an empty tomb that couldn't contain him any longer. Linen cloths and the face, face cloth that were the clothes of the dead. When we think back in John and the story of Lazarus, what was interesting is Lazarus came out in the grave clothes. They were still on him. Remember, he came out and Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. But when Jesus came out, there was absolutely no remnants of death that could take hold of him. No remnants of death that could touch him. Indeed, he's in a resurrection body. There's a lot of debate among scholars about what the resurrection body looked like. We're going to see here tonight that it's certainly part physical. That there's a fleshly element to it, but there's, there's something more there. There's something different than, than just the normal body that you and I wear, the tent that we live in for a time. Jesus, when he came out of that tomb, had bamboozled his most ancient of enemies, indeed our most ancient foe. But there is something I want to point out as before we just step back from this. You know, for many centuries, and even today, people all understand that the resurrection is what it all hinges on. If, if the resurrection is true, if, if the tomb was truly empty because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that changes everything. It gives him all authority, all power, all glory, and everything that he said was true. But if it wasn't true, for whatever reason, and, and one of the biggest uh, lies and myths at the time that was passed around even from that day was that Jesus' body had been stolen by the disciples now, now, this is sort of a, a little clue right here that would beg the question, why on earth would they do that? If the body were stolen, why would you take the time to remove the clothes? For what purpose would that be? In fact, it would be easier to leave everything there, to, to leave all the wrappings on him and steal the body that way. The disciples reported that the grave clothes were left in the grave because that's where they belonged, not with the risen Savior. Though they saw the absence of a body, they did not see the presence of the risen Lord, at least not yet. Let's go to verse 8, chapter 20 of John. Then the, first, <clears throat> then the other disciple, who had reached the term tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having saw this, <clears throat> said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means beloved teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Peter and John saw, but didn't see. Mary heard, but she didn't hear. The last time that we have heard from Mary Magdalene in the account of John was right at the cross. And so it, it's no wonder that she's weeping. It's no, uh, no wonder that she's on the verge of despair. And, and we start out with Mary's account. Peter and John have, have, before they go back, John begins to believe as soon as he sees. He sees and then he believes. Now, not to pick on John too much, but Jesus' resurrection, though it certainly was an enigma, was by no means or shouldn't have been a surprise. In John chapter 2, Jesus said in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And you remember at the time it caused quite the kerfuffle that that the Jewish people said it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to tear it down and raise it up? And this guy is... A little crazy, or maybe a lot crazy. But the disciples should have known that what he was talking about wasn't a building, but a body. Many people believe without fully understanding. Jesus, uh, John, believed as soon as he saw. And yet it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must raise from the dead. John sees and, and he believes. He doesn't fully understand it, but he still believes. That, that, that's, that's wonderful news. You need to maybe park right here for just a second. Many believe in Christ without fully mentally understanding the totality of the story. Without fully understanding how it was that Jesus did it. There's so many questions that we have on an intellectual level with the story of Jesus. It's very natural to ask those questions. But we're not given all the answers here. A lot of it is we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to trust. And that's wonderful. It's particularly helpful because Jesus does not call us to understand. He calls us to believe. You see, some people say, well, I don't know if I can become a Christian. I just don't know enough yet. Do I know enough? Some people say, well, I can't share my faith. I'm not, I, don't, I don't understand all of it. I don't know all the answers. So we let the professionals do that. Listen, if you think full mental understanding 
is the litmus test for a follower of Jesus Christ, you have greatly misunderstood the story. Here is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, by maybe some accounts perhaps Jesus' favorite. He did not fully get it. He saw, but he didn't see. And yet still he believed. For those of us in Christ, there are times when we're going to be able to see, but not fully see. We're going to have an inkling of an understanding, but not the full understanding. And we're going to just have to trust. I was talking to a lady after worship this morning. You would know who it was, but I'm I didn't get permission to share the story, so I'll keep it anonymous. But her child is going through a, a health condition that she has zero control over. I mean, the, the, the doctors have literally said, we just want to watch it. We just want to record it. We just want to see what is happening. You know, that has to be agony for a mother, a father, to watch your child and to know that you are basically helpless. And yet in that moment, not to make at all light of that situation is very real. But in that moment, they are learning the essence of faith, which is this. You have to trust your father. You have to trust your Jesus, even if you don't see the whole picture. Let's go back to Mary. She's at the, at the tomb first. Her original purpose, no doubt, to arise and to prepare the body. Now, now you think of what, what kind of devotion Mary Magdalene is showing. Long after hope is gone, long after the crowds have dissipated, long after the body has been removed and laid into the borrowed tomb out of the pity of a friend, long after all the excitement, long after everyone has lost hope in Jesus, because they killed him. I mean, what, what, what more can happen here? Here's the faithful disciple Mary. Getting up before the sun does. Getting herself out of bed. Perhaps preparing for herself a meal, but, but not, not at all being the focus of the day. Maybe she was just went on an empty stomach, she, she prepares the spices and she takes them to tenderly care for the body of Harabonai, who had showed her mercy when no one else had, who had taught her things that no one else had taught, who had tenderly cared for her. And now in a beautiful act of returning that grace, she goes to prepare the body of her friend, of her teacher, of her rabbi. And now she's just trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Because she did not go to that tomb expecting it to find it empty. She hears two angels. Woman, why are you weeping? She hears Jesus the first time, mistaking him for the gardener. And finally, finally, I don't know if, if Jesus started glowing. I don't know if he changed his voice. I don't know if it was just a, a change of his pitch or his inflection. But finally he says, Mary. 
and gets her attention. And she replies with this beautiful Aramaic rabbinai, which by my research means a most honored or deeply beloved teacher. Um, Some of you, I'm not sure how many, but may know uh, the name Clifford Payne. Clifford was... uh, the preacher who, whose teachings and orations I cut my teeth on. Small man. But man, he had a voice. Man, he could preach. And, and he could preach. And I got, I come up here with, you know, notes and PowerPoints and all that stuff and he'd just get up and riff. And it's just almost every time he brought you to the blood of the lamb, he brought you to the Christ on the cross, he brought you to the empty tomb. He was fantastic. I love to sit and listen. And many people love to sit and listen to Clifford. He was a wise man. He was a good man. There was one man at Emporia Avenue that uh, particularly was fond of Clifford. He and Clifford had a lot of things in common. They shared a lot of life together. They had uh, a deeper friendship than just on Sundays. They would go out and do personal work together, uh, calling on uh, visitors and people in the church. They would uh, teach together. He would learn about how to be a better leader. You see, there's a difference in hearing Clifford and saying, man, that guy's a good preacher. Toward how... uh, this gentleman viewed Clifford as more of a beloved teacher, as someone who made an impression on his life. Um, in later years, Clifford and his wife moved down to Florida, retired. He still preached to a very old age, and eventually his mind succumbed to Alzheimer's, and he passed away a few years ago. And when he did, uh, his friend... I was the first to know and, and to let everyone else know. And his passing had the most impact on him. I'm telling you this story about Clifford and, and someone at, at the church who had a, a, something deeper than just that guy's a good speaker. I, this was uh, someone who said Clifford had influence. When I think about a strong Christian leader, when I think about someone who's a who um, exudes wisdom and patience and mercy and kindness and love. That's who I think of. When Mary says, Rabboni, see, it's, it's deeper than just rabbi. It's, it's more tender, you see. She's saying, Rabboni. There you are. You remember in John chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And they follow me because they know my voice. This is a beautiful personification of exactly what Jesus was talking about, in a very literal way, of course. 
Some might pull back and ask the question, well, why was she weeping? Why was she sad? Well, like we said, the last time we heard from her, or the last time at least John mentioned her, was at the cross. As she watched him suffocate to death. As she watched his last, heard his last words. As she watched his precious blood drip out upon the ground. No wonder, no wonder she was heavy with fear. Her heart was weighed down. Her heart was anchored in fear. And now she would try to cling to Jesus for fear of losing him. Faith and fear are both very similar kinds of anchors. One holds you secure, and the other holds you down. And we have to be careful to choose wisely which anchor we're going to cling to. Just ask the disciples. Verse 19 is where we're going to pick up. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, I'm sorry. Make sure I don't go too far here. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands in his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. The disciples have locked themselves in a prison of fear, and Jesus is going to do a prison break. Can you imagine the brouhaha that must have ensued when Jesus, I mean, walked into the room, having not had seen him and since he was last hanging on the cross? It is show and tell time. Mary had to tell them, but Jesus had to show them. Resurrection transformed their fear into faith. 
and drew their panic into peace. John, or Jesus would earlier say, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. And neither let them be afraid. Resurrection didn't just transform the disciples' fear into faith. It transformed, changed testing Thomas into trusting Thomas. I know people call him doubting Thomas infamously. But we need to remember that, that Thomas was ready to die with Jesus. He is the one given credit in John eleven six for saying, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was no nincompoop. I mean, he knew, the teens like that word, Thomas was no fool. He knew exactly what he was doing. Thomas's reaction shows that he was not gullible or easily duped for that matter. Sometimes I think that the world believes that Christians are foolish, easily duped. That they just blindly accept whatever is taught from a pulpit or by a pastor or by a preacher. And in some cases, maybe that's true. But the Bible never speaks of such faith. Walking by faith does not mean walking blindly. And I think we do well to, to use our brains and engage with what this book really says. We have nothing to fear by that. And so Thomas, after checking out the evidence, makes the most beautiful confession that one can make. My Lord and my God. He saw the wounds, he heard his voice, and his conclusion was that Jesus is master and deity and savior. And by the way, if that wasn't true, then Thomas was being a blasphemer. And Jesus was condoning his blasphemy. If it wasn't true, if Jesus was not Lord and God, then Jesus should have corrected him. And maybe the disciples should have pulled out the stones. The resurrection showed Jesus' identity, his power, and his authority. And it leads us to the centerpiece of John. I don't know if you have a, a centerpiece at your Thanksgiving table or your Christmas table, but it's that decorative piece that's designed to just draw your eye in, to focus on the very thing that you've come to do, to feast. In a similar sort of way, John has this centerpiece and it's found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is the whole hub of the wheel. This is the, the crux of the matter. Uh, these verses are why John set out to write this book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You and I 
don't get to see the miracles that John described. We don't notice the signs that he witnessed. We didn't hear all the things that John heard. But he wrote them down for us, at least some of them. And not just for us, for generations yet unborn. And so though we do not see, we might still believe. And by believing, we may truly see. May we take away two big things from this. Number one, believing is seeing. Some people think that seeing is believing. Some might accuse Thomas of, of being one of those folks. But with Christ, believing is seeing. We don't get to see, hear, or touch Jesus. We assume that would help. Most likely it would not. If your heart is hard and you can't see Jesus, my guess is your heart would be hard if you could see him. If your neck was stiff and you can't see Jesus, it would probably just the same if you heard Jesus. Jesus pronounces faith where you can't see as being the more blessed type of faith. And no matter what, we get to believe. But believing is more than just seeing. Believing is changing. The resurrection day changed the eleven forever. It changed the rest of the disciples forever. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, he saw and he believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now pay attention to how Luke records the same Peter and the same John as the early church begins. In Acts 4.13, Luke describes this, when they saw the boldness and Peter of John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized the only thing they could recognize, but that these two had been with Jesus. Truly, believing is seeing. And when you begin to believe, it should change you. Because of what he's done and because of what's been done on that resurrection Sunday. Indeed, it changed everything for them. It changes everything for us. My question is, has it changed anything at all in you? If you're ready to put on Christ, to begin the journey that John talked about, I'd love to have you do that tonight. Or if you've started the journey, but maybe you've lost your way. You've forgotten the reason, the purpose. You've forgotten what resurrection is all about. If you're ready to believe again, if you need new eyes and fresh faith, if you'd like our prayers and encouragement or whatever help we might offer, I'll be glad to meet you down front, help you in any way that we can as together we stand and sing.